anyone can cook. That's the recurring line from the Disney Pixar animated movie Ratatouille. I'm not sure how many people have seen this movie Ratatouille. It's a great film from 2007, if you can believe it. It's a long time ago. I love Pixar movies growing up. They were my jam. They still are my jam. Uh, This past weekend, I just watched Luca. just came on Disney+. Plus. It's a great film. But my favorite films, let's see, Toy Story 2, because you asked. I mean, I know you want to know my favorite Pixar film. You asked, so I just was going to tell you. Pixar, uh, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., The Incredibles, WALL-E, Inside Out. My least favorite, because you want to know, my least favorite Pixar films are any of the cash grab sequels that didn't need to exist. So, like, Monsters University sucks. I'm just going to say it. It's a really bad movie. I mean, like, it's gorgeous animation, but did not need to exist. Cars 2? Just skip to Cars 3. Finding Dory? Well, I, I guess so. I guess we can. But Ratatouille is rising up on my list of beloved Pixar films, even though it's taken a little bit of time. For those who have never seen the film, Ratatouille follows a rat named Remy, who has a talent for cooking, but also dreams of becoming a chef. And he tries to achieve this goal by forming an alliance with the restaurant's garbage boy named Linguini. And the gimmick of the film is Remy's ability to control Linguini by tugging on his hair and hiding under his hat. But the movie shows the hilarious escapades to keep this alliance between human and rat a secret, especially in a restaurant restaurant kitchen. But in my opinion, Ratatouille has kind of gotten a bad rap among the Pixar films for some reason. It's looked down upon, I guess, because who wants to watch a movie about a rat? I mean, I didn't really as a kid. But as an adult, I have found a newfound appreciation for Ratatouille. Rewatching it now, I see the message of the movie that I entirely missed as a kid. And while there are likely a lot of takeaways from the film, one is captured in the recurring line of, anyone can cook. Remy's idol is a famous chef named Chef Cousteau, and this is his entire model. Anyone can cook, and the entire point of the movie is proving that anyone, including perhaps even a rat, can cook. But for those who have seen the movie, you may remember the final showdown between Remy and Linguini and the strict restaurant food critic Anton Ego. Ego comes to Remy's restaurant to evaluate the quality of the food, and this puts everyone on edge because Ego's restaurant reviews usually decide the fate of the restaurant. And Ego arrives, and Remy personally prepares his dish, and surprisingly, Ego becomes mesmerized by the meal he is served. In this cold-hearted, stern, and even vile man, a staunch critic of the Gusto's motto of anyone can cook, has a change of heart after tasting the meal by an unordinary chef. And Ego has his review, and it's presented in this monologue, and I'll say one of these great lines that flew over my head as a kid, but now it's quite powerful. He says, In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, Anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. I believe anyone can profit. I'm not talking about a financial profit, a get-rich-quick scheme or anything like that. Rather, I'm talking about the fact that if I could say it in the words of Anton Ego, 
a great prophet can come from anywhere. And perhaps God is still interested in calling prophets from anywhere today. I'm going to go on a bit of a risk today. I'm going to preach the text from Amos in reverse. Hopefully my intentions will become clear by the end of the message for doing so. Because in a rare instance in the prophetic writings, we get a brief story involving one of the prophets. And while the book of Amos contains many of the things that the prophet Amos said, I want to zone in on chapter 7, which includes a few unique experiences for the prophet Amos. The prophet Amos is confronted by the priest of Bethel named Amaziah. And Amaziah is employed by the government of Israel, more specifically the royal court of King Jeroboam II. And he has just sent word from Bethel about 50 miles to the Israelite capital of Samaria to report of the worrisome preaching of Amos. For you see, Amos's previous vision concerning the future status of Israel and her king has caught Amaziah's attention not as a word from the Lord, but as a conspiracy theory by a foreign prophet. Fake news as, as far as Amaziah is concerned. But in an effort to preserve the peace in Israel, he tells Amos to leave Bethel and return to his home country. While Amaziah has sent word for King Jeroboam II to tell him what to do, he takes matters into his own hands and confronts Amos. Someone stirring the pot with fiery, provoking preaching is not uncommon in Amaziah's line of work. Several different prophets from different prophet schools or guilds of the time have dotted the landscape of both Israel and Judah. So this isn't his first rodeo. The problem Amaziah has is the effect of Amos' words on the people. Amaziah couldn't care two cents if Amos was saying these things in Judah, but Amos ain't in Judah, he's in Israel, and Amaziah's message isn't going to fly here under Amaziah's watch. From Amaziah's perspective, Amos' preaching is dangerous for national morale because Amos is starting to stir people against his employer, the king. And that's a major no-no for him. And he tells Amos to beat it, to hit the road. For you see the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, likely were heard right before the pulpit to Israel was filled by the prophet Hosea, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. Amos was active during the king, reigns of King Uzziah and Judah and the aforementioned King Jeroboam II in Israel. And this puts him being in about the middle of the 8th century B.C. And it was a time of relative peace between Israel and Judah, these two former sibling countries. And the evil empire of Syria wasn't quite a threat like it was in Hosea, but that reality is right around the corner. Amos is from Tekoa a small town about 10 to 12 miles south of Jerusalem and only about six miles southeast of Bethlehem. Tekoa, in a sense, is in the middle of nowhere. It's on the edge of what was known as the Judean wilderness, and because of its elevation, you could actually see the Mount of Olives, which is very important in the New Testament from Tekoa, but then you could also see Mount Nebo across the Dead Sea, which was the place where Moses viewed the Promised Land. The town lies between two valleys with the shores of the Dead Sea not far in the southeast. This critical detail about Amos is important because he's a Judean, and it begs the question, shouldn't he be preaching to the kingdom of Judah, not the kingdom of Israel? It would seem that Amos has missed his target audience, or has he? 
Perhaps Amos is right where he's supposed to be, not because of his choice, but rather because someone else has strategically placed him there. And so the first words uttered by Amos in response to Amaziah's charges and demands to leave are, I am no prophet. The literal Hebrew makes Amos sound a bit like Yoda when translated verbatim, no professional prophet am I, and no member of a prophetic guild am I. Amos tells the priest of Bethel that he's not a prophet by trade. He doesn't make money by being a prophet. In fact, he doesn't belong to one of the schools or guilds that many other prophets of his day did. He didn't go to seminary in preparation to be a prophet. He has no religious background or training. In fact, he's just a simple, hardworking Judean called by God for a particular purpose. Amos's true profession is a bit more ambiguous than our English translations make it out to be, namely because the original Hebrew used to denote his career is hard to translate. Older, more traditional portraits may denote Amos as a lowly shepherd who travels to the big city and is outraged by the atrocities and wickedness he sees, and then he starts to preaching. But that's not necessarily the case. While Amos was definitely a peasant, he was likely not poor. Rather, he was probably wealthy and owned property. He had a life, he had a purpose, and he likely had a successful and profitable enterprise. And so the opening verse is often translated shepherd, and later Amos himself calls himself a herdsman. And so most scholars tend to agree on better terminology to depict Amos's line of work as that of either being a sheep breeder meaning that he likely bred herds of sheep or rams and traveled around the countryside selling them. Or he was an owner of livestock as opposed to simply being a shepherd, meaning that he owned probably more than just sheep. He probably had cattle and goats. But this is all to say that Amos had his hand in the livestock business in some form or fashion. But then Amos tells us that he's also a dresser of sycamore figs or trees, depending on your translation. This phrase in Hebrew does not appear anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. It's exclusive to the book of Amos, and as a result, this has left many Bible scholars puzzled as to what it means and how to best translate it. Sycamore trees in the land of Judah are different from the kinds of sycamore trees that grow here in the United States. Particularly, these trees grow a lot of figs that grow directly out of the large branches of the tree. For those who are familiar with the short and stature little tax collector named Zacchaeus in the New Testament, this was the kind of tree that he climbed in order to see Jesus when he entered into Jericho. And so again, the difficulty for scholars is determining what this means. And suffice to say, the majority opinion is that Amos likely owned an orchard or two of sycamore trees somewhere in Judah that he maintained and managed. Amos' entire resume is intended to show us that he is an unconventional prophet by Old Testament standards. Amos is not in the prophetic business. Amos is in the agricultural business. Amos tells Amaziah that he's seemingly out of his element here. He's out of his comfort zone. And he replies to Amaziah, look, I ain't like you religious folk. I ain't a preacher. I ain't been to school to be a preacher. I don't hang out with other preachers. I'm a businessman with experience in livestock and sycamore trees. If you do a background check, that's what you'll find. But then Amos drops this important little tidbit, but the Lord. 
but God. Does it sound familiar? Amos tells Amaziah the reason that he's here in Bethel in the country of Israel is only because God called him to do so. This somewhat wealthy livestock owner and manager of sycamore fig orchards has been suddenly yanked out of his customary life by the hand of God and told to journey northward to Israel in order to proclaim God's judgment on them. Amos' entire ministry and message comes from his conviction that God wanted him to do so. This was not Amos' plan. This was not Amos on Amos' radar. God, one day, seemingly out of the blue, tapped Amos on the shoulder and said to him, Go prophesy to my people Israel. In the midst of his busy work schedule, the deadlines that needed to get done on the farm or in the orchard, and even any potential unsaid hesitations on Amos' part, God called Amos anyway to be his mouthpiece to the people of Israel living up north across the border at that specific time in history. Go, God said to Amos, go. And so Amos tells the priest of Bethel that he was just being obedient to God's calling. He went, he prophesied, he did what God called him to do, whether he was ready or not. Oh, wait, that was the last sermon series. Uh, anyway, Amos lays all of his cards on the table saying that his message and presence is directly inspired by God because the only reason he would ever have stepped foot in Bethel is because God specifically called him to do so. And so perhaps God is still in the business of calling Amos-like people today. That's the question that I've been pondering this week. We see in the person of the prophet of Amos an indication of the kind of person that God calls to be his mouthpiece, his hands and feet, his prophetic witness, and that kind of person appears to be anybody, anyone. God is free to choose whoever to work with and through. Note that the prophet is not free to do whatever he or she pleases. Rather, the prophet is under divine conscription to do and speak only that which God himself directs him or her to do. God is capable of occasionally upsetting human expectations for prophets by choosing someone outside the religious institutions that usually produce these kinds of individuals. And I believe God is still capable of calling Amos-like people or Amos's today. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English Baptist prince of preachers, once said, Don't hold back because you can't preach in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Be content to talk to one or two in a cottage. Very good wheat grows in little fields. You may cook in small pots as well as in big ones. Little pigeons can carry great messages. Even a little dog can bark at a thief and wake up the master and save the house. A spark is a fire. A sentence of truth has heaven in it. Do what you do right thoroughly, pray over it heartily, and leave the results to God. I believe God is still calling Amos's. The Lord is calling men and women, regardless of profession or background, to do the things akin to what prophets did. Ministry is not just something professional prophets can do. Anyone can do it. Wherever you are right now in life, whether it's a student, a stay-at-home parent, a business owner, a farmer, an office worker, a truck driver, or whatever, God calls you, God wants to use you, and he's calling you to be a prophetic witness. God will not reject or supersede your profession like he did Amos. God used Amos as he was 
Time does not allow for me to explore all the different kinds of people God used in the Old Testament. They weren't famous or highly educated Bible scholars or theologians. They were just simply people willing to be obedient, much like Amos. People like Abraham, Moses, David, Esther, Nehemiah, the list could go on. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you'll notice the people Jesus called to be his followers and who he left to be responsible for the church were people that were much like Amos. They were a bunch of Amoses. Jesus didn't go and recruit a handful of Amaziahs. He didn't initially draft a bunch of priests and scribes from among the Sadducees and Pharisees. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus called and handed the mantle of his ministry to fishermen, a tax collector, table servers, homeowners, and tent makers. Jesus left the care and responsibility of the church with these kinds of people, and only later did Jesus add Amaziah-like people. Hear me when I say I'm not knocking or advocating against the people who dedicate their lives to full-time prophetic ministry service. Well, obviously, I'm standing in front of you. Nor am I criticizing the places that produce these kinds of people. I'm not arguing against the need of colleges and seminaries, ministry associations and denominations. The church needs Amaziah-like people. The church needs Amaziahs to function and provide spiritual training and formation, among other things. And except, I think this is the key, it needs Amaziahs that recognize the necessity and value of Amos's. It needs Amaziahs that listen and welcome Amoses and not silence and send them away. The church needs to be a place where both Amaziahs and Amoses work together for the love of God, the love of neighbor, and the salvation of many. For Amoses and Amaziahs listening this morning and what you're doing right now, the profession that you're in, the background that you have, could it be exactly the kind of prophet God wants to use somehow? He may not be calling you to go to a foreign country like Amos, but perhaps God may be calling you to minister to a particular person or a people because of the inroad you innately have because of where you are in your story right now. You may not qualify yourself as a prophet like Amos did, but you're willing to be obedient and serve God wherever he may be calling you, just like Amos. And if indeed Amos is not a prophet by his own volition, then this non-prophet is able to do a lot of prophet-like stuff regardless. And it appears that just because he didn't quite fit the mold that a prophet typically fit, that didn't mean God treated him any different than the other prophets. This rancher and farmer turned international prophet does two key things, among other things, that I think prophets typically do. And I want to look at them just, just real briefly because God is opening the door for anyone to be able to do these things that prophets did. And the first one is communing with God. Before his confrontation with Amaziah, three times, God comes to Amos and shows him something. Amos is privy to three visions from God, two of the imminent destruction and one of judgment. On one level, admittedly, God reveals to Amos two visions into the potential future. And then the final one is God shows Amos a plumb line and an illustration for how God is going to evaluate the people of Israel. These visions and their meanings are for a sermon for another time. I invite you to zoom back just a little bit further and notice what's going on here. God is having a conversation and dialoguing with a human person. 
God is talking with Amos. God is asking Amos questions. Amos, what do you see? Amos is allowed to verbally respond. God is granting Amos access to a deeper understanding of what God is doing in the world now, but also in the future. Amos is not the one driving this exchange. God is the one who took the initiative and started this conversation, and God is the one who gets the final word. But the God of the universe interacted and spoke with the human being, and I don't want us to take that for granted, the incredible opportunity humanity has to commune with God. Amos shared a special relationship with God, and one we may expect from one of the prophets. But remember, Amos is not like the other prophets. His background is not one of being a professional prophet. Amos is not trained in theology and biblical studies. Amos is a blue-collar worker, a person of business and commerce. Could it be that God sees no difference in the kind of relationship he has with the prophet Amos and other prophets that are professional prophets? A lady had been away from her home in the afternoon running some errands. And upon her return, she discovered that she had lost the key to the only door to her house. And she thought to herself, how unfortunate. Time is pressing. And she went to three neighbors and borrowed as many keys as she could in the hope that one would fit. But not one of them would. And before calling a locksmith, someone asked her if she had just tried to merely turning the door handle. And she replied in a spiritless voice, no but I will. So she grabbed the door handle, turned it to her surprise, but a little bit of embarrassment, found that the door had been unlocked the entire time. Too often in life, we deceive ourselves into thinking that too many things are between me and my relationship with God. We discover that the door leading to God has not only been unlocked this entire time, but it stands wide open with a cordial invitation for you to enter. Communion with God is not limited to just religious people or clergy. God doesn't have a stronger or better relationship with preachers or pastors or best-selling Christian authors. God communes with anyone. And while God may be using a professional prophet to aid in strengthening your ability to perceive and commune with God, ultimately access to God is not through them, but it's directly with God himself. And I believe that God is inviting everyone to a deeper relationship with fellow, and fellowship with him whether you call yourself a prophet or not. And this means that I believe everyone is capable of reading God's word and by the grace of the Holy Spirit will hear a word from the Lord in some form or fashion. This means that you can pray and talk to God. This means that you can dialogue with him. But it also means that you can prophesy. But what what do I mean by prophesy? I'm not necessarily talking about being able to see the future. Popular culture has minimized the role of prophets to just being that dimension. But prophesying in the Old Testament meant that you looked at be, you looked more like loving other people so much, and you minister to them, and you're also so in tune with God and the reality of the world that you're able to see how God is moving and working when others may not be able to see it. That's what prophets do more than just predict the future, and I believe God may be wanting to work through more and more Amos's today in our day and age, to be conduits of his grace through their actions and words. But this calling does not give clearance for anyone to be a prophet unchecked. Amos's and Amaziah's alike. Too many people can claim God spoke to me. And while I do believe God can give a word to anyone, this does not mean this is done in isolation or apart from the faith community. 
Anyone who hears a word from God or is shown something from God, their claims ought to be judged first by the full authority of Scripture and then by the church history and tradition of what Christians have said in the past, then by reason and logic, and then finally by personal experience and the experience of others. And so while anyone can be called to be a prophet, this does not mean everyone is, a, is exempt from scrutiny. And perhaps that's why we are called to live in a community with one another. A body consisting of Amaziahs and Amoses all listening and hearing from God and we bring what we find in God's word and through our experiences with God together and we discern what God is doing in our lives, in our world. The door is open. Anyone can commune with God, but God has intentionally formed a community like Gibbon Baptist Church where we can share our testimonies about with what God is doing in our lives. This is my last thing. God hears the prayers of anyone. Amos also participates in doing what the prophets in the Old Testament regularly did, which is intercede for the people. After hearing about the looming doom levied against the people of Israel, Amos prays to God on their behalf, O Lord, forgive, I beg you. O Lord, please cease. And incredibly, God relents. It shall not be. This happens not once, but twice. Two times, God reveals to Amos future destruction, one in the form of locusts, one in the form of fire, and both times, Amos fervently prays to God for mercy on the behalf of the nation of Israel, and God both times hears his prayers and appears to change his mind. And these visions demonstrate that the prophets not only brought a word of God to the people, but their work also moved in the other direction. The prophets also were an advocate bringing a word to God on behalf of the people. Amos was clearly a preacher, but he was also an intercessor. He was a person of prayer. And it's apparent that God listens to human appeals. God heard the desperate cries of Amos. And though we know we cannot manipulate or coerce God, it appears that our prayers for God to consider changing his will do not always fall on deaf ears. This passage allows for the possibility that God does indeed listen to our prayers and he may answer in a way that satisfies our intentions. Amos's concerns for the people of Israel were taken into consideration by God at that moment in time and to be sure God's people were consistently and repeatedly saved from destruction by the prayers of their prophets, just like Amos. And so perhaps, church, there is indeed power in prayer. Perhaps Amos's prayers to God are an ample reminder of that reality. The day was April 14, 1912. Archibald Gracie had gone to bed early that Sunday evening after a full day of playing squash and enjoying the swimming pool on the state-of-the-art cruise ship he was on. But a day full of activities and amusement aboard a luxury cruise ship would wear anyone out, and Gracie retired to his cabin and fell fast asleep. He was jarred awake in the middle of the night by a jolt, and he sat up and realized that the ship's engines were no longer moving, and he immediately got partially dressed. And he ascended to the upper deck and learned that the ship had collided with an iceberg and was beginning to list slightly. During that same moment in New York, his wife's sleep was also disturbed. Seized by a sudden anxiety, she sank to her knees, holding her prayer book, which ironically opened to the prayer for those who were at sea. She prayed earnestly until about 5 a.m. when the burden was lifted, and she rested quietly until about 8 the next morning when her sister came in and handed her the newspaper. 
to gently break the tragic news about the Titanic sinking. But what happened to her husband, meanwhile? Amidst the chaos of the Titanic sinking, Gracie remained on the vessel, helping escort people to the life rafts. But the Titanic foundered and took on more and more water, and as a result, the undertow pulled Gracie deep into the icy waters. And he recounts being fully submerged in the frigid waters, but miraculously, his life preserver allowed him to float back up to the top and cling to a wooden crate. And he recalls, I could see no Titanic. She had entirely disappeared beneath the surface of the ocean without a sign of any wave. Gracie was then able to move over to an overturned life raft, and with a little help, he managed to climb aboard it. He and the other survivors of this vessel were later rescued by the RMS Carpathia and survived the sinking of the Titanic. And Gracie later wrote, he said, I know of no recorded instance of providential deliverance more directly attributable to prayer. Who is God putting on your heart to intercede and pray for? You may not know what's going on, or maybe you do. But regardless, this individual or group of people is placed on your heart by God for a reason. Will you pray for them? Unlike Amos, we may not be given audible responses or answers from God concerning our intercessory prayers, but that should not diminish our need to pray for others when they're placed on our hearts. We may never know the results of our prayer, or may, it may take a long time to see any results, but who is God putting on your heart to intercede and pray for? Anyone can pray to God to help the most vulnerable. Anyone who is concerned about the powerless and hurting can lift up their thoughts to God in prayer. Anyone can cry out to God about the injustices they see in this world. Anyone can be a prophet in this sense. And we see that the Lord is often responsive to those who pray for the weak and marginalized in this world, just like he was with Amos. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, And pray for one another. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. The responsibility of interceding in prayer and petition to God is not reserved to just pastors and priests. It's not a special ability or skill that they gain in a seminary class called Intercessory Prayer 101. Don't make interceding on behalf of others in prayer more complicated than it needs to be. If someone's put on your heart, pray. Ironically or incredibly, I believe Amos is praying and interceding for people that are not his people. These aren't the families, these aren't his family and friends. Sure, we could broaden Jacob in his prayers to be both Israel and Judah, but I think Amos is praying for just the northern kingdom of Israel here. Amos was sent there, so it makes sense that these are the people he has in mind. And if that's the case, Amos is not praying for his people, but a different people. People who are strangers to him. People with historical hostilities towards him and his loved ones. People with a different government and political aspirations than him. People he could easily regard as the prophet Jonah did, the Ninevites. But Amos appears to feel no resentment or animosity towards them. He intercedes before God on their behalf anyway because that's what prophets do. Amos prays for forgiveness and mercy and rescue for people he could very well could be enemies or strangers to him. And so perhaps we could do the same. It would seem that if God calls anyone to be a prophet, that means anyone in an unfortunate situation, even with different opinions and worldviews than ours, is worthy of being mentioned in our prayers. So I admit this morning, maybe I'm reading more into this text than I should. I have a tendency to do that when I get excited about things that I read in Scripture. 
But I believe the word of God this morning is that everyone in this room or those tuning in online have the capacity to be a prophet just like Amos. Anyone can profit. Is God trying to get your attention? Maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder just like he did Amos. What or who is God placing on your heart? Your heart at work and your own Tekoa, and maybe God is calling you to be like a prophet in some capacity wherever you are. Is God calling you to, be, to go to a particular person or people group and be the light of the gospel to them? Or is God calling you to listen through his word right now? Or is God calling you to pray and intercede for a particular person or group of people that you hadn't considered before? Anyone can profit, and that includes even you.